0: My name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Leticia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when
1: starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict.
0: Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Rural Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crowe.
2: I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with the global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to 5 Things. Hello, my
0: name is Liz Crow.
2: And I'm Jessie Spur.
0: And today we have got Stacey DeVille, who is the Clinical Nurse Consultant with the Consultation and Liaison Psychiatry Service here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Welcome, Stacey. Thank you.
2: Hey, Stacey. So we like to get to know a little bit about the background of our guests. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey so far in your career?
1: Yeah, so I was a relative latecomer to nursing. Um, I was a mature student uh, in relative terms, so... Um, I chose mental health nursing and in the United Kingdom where I uh, trained, you do your nursing specialty as an undergraduate here, Uh, it's a bit different here in Australia, but um, my undergraduate nursing qualification is in mental health nursing. So um, when I came here to the Royal Brisbane and started working in consultation liaison psychiatry where we're in the general hospital, I struggled a little bit with the uh, with the nursing um, notes and the um, the um, uh, the explanations and the illnesses and things, the physical side of things, I struggled a little bit with.
2: But yeah, that's something that's really been of interest to me because I think pediatrics is another specialty mm. pre like pre-training that you, you do in the UK as well, isn't it? That's right, yeah. yeah.
1: So, there's, there's four streams. Um, there is paediatrics, adult, mental health and learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. So, we started off as a cohort of about 100 nurses yeah. um, and most of those went to adult nursing in year two, a, uh, b- um, another number to mental health and then smaller numbers to paediatrics and learning disability.
2: So, what drew, what drew you to mental health nursing to, do, to make that decision before you've even had your career yes, start? Yes.
1: Yeah, good question. Um, I'd always worked in mental health. So, even before I became a nurse, I um, worked for mental health charities in, the, uh, in England and in Scotland. So I trained in, in Scotland, um, in the west of Scotland, um, and I did um, project um, worker type roles. So, for NGOs, what would be NGOs here? So I helped people who um, had mental health problems live in the community, essentially. So would help them attend in their appointments, help them with budgeting, help them with their shopping, those sorts of things. So I did that for a number of years, um, and then decided at some point I wanted to go to Australia, and nursing was my ticket of entry. Your ticket, really, into Australia.
0: So you've obviously always had a real passion for mental health, and when we spoke to the new graduate nurses, mental health was consistently a topic where mm-hmm. people really started to struggle. Mm-hmm. So we're really excited to have you here this morning. So I was wondering, could you start with the no- your number one? Yeah. And I think it's everyone's kind of major question, like, what is mental health? And how does that differ, I guess, from just average emotions?
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, so, um, when we think about mental health, we think of it as being on a continuum. So, um, it's something that's forever changing throughout somebody's life and um, there will be periods on that continuum where people might suffer from mental illness um, and, or a mental disorder as, as another name. Um, so, it's about being – mental health is about being psychologically well um, Social, Socially well. So it's about your well-being emotionally, psychologically and socially, essentially. Um, so it determines, having good mental health determines how we handle stress, how we relate to others, um, how we manage our workloads. Um, looking after your mental health is, is just as important as looking after your physical health and good mental health is associated with higher levels of productivity, um, better social relationships. Um, good physical health and also increased life expectancy.
0: So what would be the difference then between mental health and mental illness? Like, how would I know, okay, I'm having a mental health crisis as opposed to I'm having a mental illness crisis? Yes. Well, if you
1: take, um, take something like depression, for example, and sadness. So if we're thinking about The difference between sadness and being depressed. And the two terms are often used interchangeably. But there's a big difference. Sadness is a normal human emotion that we all go through from time to time when we're faced with stressful situations. That might be having a bad time at work for a period of time, might be a bad problem a problem in a relationship. And we might feel sad about that. But generally, um, with some with some input from friends, if we've got good social connections uh, or family connections, um, or if we've got good um, an, uh, if we've got good um, sort of non-pharmacological ways of managing that, like exercise, for example, those sorts of things. If we can put those things in place, the sadness will will go away after a time. Um, when things start to improve. With depression, um, depression's an abnormal state, really. It's a mental illness and it's an abnormal state that that doesn't go away unless it's treated. Um, it's much more than just... Depression's much more than just an emotion. So sadness is, is an emotion, depression's an illness. So um, there is sadness in depression, but it's not the be-all and end-all of
2: it. And I guess that comes down to the diagnosis versus the feeling that way Um, and one of the kind of common characteristics of diagnosis is that persistency and pervasiveness across settings without relief um, I I guess is the probably the simplest way I I, uh, that was a fantastic explanation and I think it's we get really jumbled up on it but it's really very similar to physical illnesses Mm -hmm. it strikes me you can be really unfit but still not have a chronic disease yeah um, and we overcomplicate it with mental health so much in mm-hmm. our thinking. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, yeah, it's very, it's very akin to a physical problem. For example, if you, if you're um, somebody that's relatively otherwise healthy, you have a cold, for example, you might not need treatment for that cold. You might feel a bit miserable for a day, or you might have a runny nose or a number of symptoms, but you don't take treatment for that. You rest. Um, you might take a day off work, but it doesn't meet criteria for sort of assertive treatment like medications, for example, or other therapies. So um, that that's in a way where depression differs from, from, from sadness,
0: really. It's interesting, isn't it, because I have found, you know, as a therapist over the last decade, more and more people, you know, identify themselves as having depression or anxiety when in actual fact they may have simple sadness due to a life event or, and I keep saying this to people, anxiety in itself is not a disorder. You know, like we need levels of anxiety to keep ourselves safe. If I am being pursued by someone who, you know, has a face mask on, isn't wielding a knife, if I'm not anxious about that, mm-hmm. I'm going to be attacked. So there's there's... It's a, it's hard to know, I guess, what is normal for some people on that continuum. Are you seeing that a lot in your practice?
1: Yes, we um, we see a lot of anxiety in the general hospital, and it's not really unsurprising given that um, the people that we see are in a in a hospital, and um, more often than not, they are experiencing an acute illness, um, which is very anxiety provoking, um, and. Um, as you sort of said there earlier, um, anxiety is something that we actually need we need it 's a mechanism that goes back years it 's an evolutionary response that we have um, that helps us to um, fight or flight i guess when we um, when we come into contact with something that 's dangerous, so we need that level of anxiety and we need that um, process to take place so that we can survive as a a sort of species over time. When it becomes a problem is when that stress response that's normal uh, in that situation um, happens in situations that are not threatening. So um, situations like going to work, for example, or speaking in front of other people or those sorts of things. Yeah, being know, made to do a podcast.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Made's so. a strong way, <laughs> <probably>. Encouraged. <laughs> yeah, th-
1: those those sorts of things, you know, that they're. it's normal to feel anxious around ar- about those things, but um, it's when anxiety interferes with your ability to do those things. So it's normal to feel anxious about speaking in front of people, but... If there was to be avoidance around that over a longer period of time,
0: for example, then
1: that's something that would need to to look at in terms of treatment or therapy.
0: Great. That takes us beautifully into um, your second point. Do you want to share what you've you've provided as your number two?
1: Yeah, so um, I thought we'd talk about the importance of developing a therapeutic relationship with patients. So... Um, this is something that as mental health um, nurse students um, is drummed into you from day one when you start your mental health training really is the importance of um, a good relationship, a good rapport with your patient um, with the goal of um, a better outcome in terms of their treatment and their recovery, so it's it's fundamental really to, to good nurse to good mental health nursing care and nursing care to have a good relationship with your patient. Um, establishing that relationship isn't always easy; um, it doesn't always happen for some patients, um, but. Um, it's it's something that's very important if you um if you want a patient to trust you. Now, as nurses, we're seen as the most trusted profession, I think, for many years in a row, um, but that doesn't automatically mean that patients are going to trust us. So we have to be um, genuine in our interactions with them, authentic, um, and there has to be a level of mutual respect and understanding between a patient. Um, and a nurse there's a big power differential between a nurse and a patient Um, and patients who come into hospital feel that and they know that we we tell them as nurses you know this is what time you have to get up this is what time breakfast is this is what time you have to go to sleep this is what time. Um, this is how many obs you're going to get overnight. So we we'll take we take that control away from patients, really, and so we we need to give something back as well. We need to be able to um, have them trust us.
2: Um, so I I absolutely think what you're saying is 100. percent Some techniques because you're a consult. You you're often. Um, role is coming in in a consulting capacity so you're meeting patients at a slice within their um, other other reasons of admission in the hospital have you got some strategies and techniques that you've developed over time for that building rapid rapport to kind of enter into that relationship
1: yes well um being yourself first and foremost um is is very valuable being authentic um being true to your own qualities is is um is fundamental to that. But um, I always find um, getting to know the patients a bit better. So, not just their illness, not just their bed number. Who are they? Where have they come from? Who's their husband? Who's their wife? How many kids do they have? Making general conversation with patients that are not about what time they have to get up for dinner or what time they have to have OBS, those sorts of things. Um, Finding out about the patient as a person, they're much more than their illness. Everybody's illness experience um, is very individualised and um, patients like it when nurses seem
0: interested in them um, as a
1: person rather than,
0: rather than just
1: a disease or an illness or uh, a bed number.
0: I've always found that it's easy if you can find something that the patient is obviously engaged in. So if someone's reading a newspaper to come in and say, so what's the story, you know, what's the current affairs of today or I really love your sparkly slippers, you know, something that's a, an entry point. You can't always find that easily with someone. But, you know, if if someone's wearing a Broncos jersey to say, oh, are you a big Broncos fan, you know, how are they going this season? I don't know anything about it but you could teach me all about it while we – help you get off to the shower you know something that gives you an in that demonstrates I see you as a human
1: yes that's right yeah yeah that's a very good point they um getting to know a bit about them um is very helpful so uh, as a mental health nurse um I always sort of introduce myself um let them know that I'll I'm here for this particular reason being honest with them about why why we've been asked to see them um if Often patients like to show you photos on their phone. You know, they might have a dog. They might start talking about their dog. So sharing stories about dogs, those sorts of things, you know, finding something about that person um, that allows you to interact with them as a person, not just a nurse. And I find that helps to, um, helps to mitigate a lot of problems um, down the line.
2: I've got a sneaky one that I do that's very broad, and it's, um, it's just what do you get up to when you're not here? Um, because it doesn't put any kind of inference into the question. I've found I've gone, where I've gone wrong a bit is when people are of a, a assumed working age and stuff of, oh, what do you do for work? Oh, I'm unemployed. And it, it opens, it closes a conversation rather than opens it. Um, I have had a few people go, nothing, just watch TV. Oh, well, what do you like to watch on TV or whatever's on it? It's yeah. like, we're not getting anywhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> find another way. Yeah. <laughs> I guess another really thing that I know everyone's, you know, interested to hear about is your number three point, which is de-escalation of emotions without using medications. So we have a lot of junior nurses right across the world um, with mixed skill set. Just as we have patients with high acuity, lots of people with acute mental health problems, People with delirium, people with drug and alcohol addictions, mm-hmm. um, where emotions can sort of go from zero to a hundred very quickly and can be quite confronting. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this whole de-escalation um, of emotions just through interactions? Yeah, so um,
1: I think we remembering that when a patient is in here in hospital, um, that in itself is distressing for somebody and. In that sense, they will display a range of emotions. Some people might withdraw, for example. Some people might get really angry. Some people might um, be very tearful. Um, and it's. I guess it's easy to assume that these might be as a result of a mental health problem or as a depression or anxiety, but often communication, good communication with the patient about the situation and about why they're so upset is often a good starting point so obviously if somebody is acutely agitated acutely distressed very um they might be aggressive as well you know that the, you've sort of missed that point where you can sit down with them and have a chat but starting that communication with them early on being interested in them, as I said earlier, um, making sure that they are able to communicate their needs um, to the people that are looking after them um, is also very important. So, being a, being an advocate for the patient, really. So, um, finding out, you know. Why is it they're so distressed? They may have come into hospital unexpectedly. They may have a cat at home, for example, that, um, that they don't know who's going to feed. So um, finding out those sorts of things often, it's about good communication.
2: Mm. I've found too uh, to is being aware of what our soft and hard boundaries are going to be as well, because I think that's one of the things is as an ICU nurse, we can be very rigid. Um, I'll wear that. And so often the soft and hard boundaries are almost next to each other um, and being a bit more aware of going, actually, what's going to be okay? What, what outside of normal range of emotion or behaviour in this context am I going to be okay with to give that framework for negotiation so I'm not trying to... I guess the risk is invalidating the emotion that this person has because you want to be comfortable with where, where it's at. One thing I've seen that... Uh, seen expert mental health practitioners that come into ICU do which it seems like sorcery to me is just get this read on when they've got to take control and actually become I guess more dominant in a situation versus when to actually step back and negotiate and be a bit quieter and calmer and it's it's like I said it seems like sorcery is there (laughs) is there any kind of approaches you have to a to a situation to where you're in seeing someone who is like on the more aggressive and I guess non-productive end of the emotional spectrum, not just that it's something we're uncomfortable with but it's actually not helping them or they care.
1: And I think you've hit the nail on the head there when you talk about... um a patient who's aggressive that you you have to sort of take control and you do at that point so if somebody is is acutely aggressive and they're threatening staff or they're threatening other patients or they're being extremely disruptive to the ward then you do have to go in there and take control because you don't the risk is that somebody will get hurt um, and so there are mechanisms, mechanisms in place for dealing with that so you have security officers for example that can attend the ward and Sometimes just the presence of a security officer can be enough for somebody to back off a bit. Um, if that's not the case and um, aggression increases, for example, you know, you do have medications available to help manage that aggression. But really, if you, if you can identify early what the problem is, because all behaviour has a, has a reason then um, then that will help to de-escalate the situation and, and prevent it from getting worse.
0: As a side I've had a lot of people scream at me over the years, I'd have to say. And one of the techniques that I have found useful is often when people, I'll call it kick off, you know, <laughs> start to, you know, you can feel it building the yes. tensions in the room. Yeah. They're just starting to amp up and, you know, that's kind of, there's a sweet spot where you can engage and, as you say, sometimes you just need to get out and keep yourself safe. Mm-hmm. But I have found that um, when I was more junior, you know, that as they raised their voice, I got firmer and hands on hips and don't you, you know, like, we're not going to tolerate that. And I've never in my whole career, you know, really ever said, you need to calm down or we're going to get security and someone goes, oh, you know what, sorry about that, I'm just going to hop back into bed. <laughs> you know, I find <laughs> that he that takes it up a level. But to... When people are really yelling at me, first of all, I keep myself physically s- safe. I know where that. I keep myself close to the door, make sure I can't be blocked, make sure I'm out of the way of kicking or punching or things like that. But I've found to lower your voice, mm. speak very quietly. Yes. Because when you're speaking very quietly, it's very hard to keep screaming, for yeah. the other person to keep screaming at you because they can't hear what you're saying. Yeah. Now, it doesn't always work, yeah. but I've found, you know, saying, I'd like to help. You
2: know, I'd like to help you. It can sometimes end up in, why are you effing whispering?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It can, but it's just another strategy, isn't it? And I guess as your practice grows, you learn those range of tools and when when it is safe to lean in and when sometimes you just have to call an authority figure like security and get out the way because it's just dangerous. I'm
2: I'm conscious I don't want to dwell on like the – agitation end of the spectrum because it feels a bit stereotypy as well but it's an important thing for safety and also I guess it's the most uncomfortable thing a lot of nurses Mm -hmm. have so we might um, put a lid on that one and move on to our next point
0: yeah can you share your number four so the
1: number four is uh, mental health assessment Um, so as um, as mental health nurses or mental health clinicians we perform mental health assessments on people when when we're asked to go and see them um, and it's essentially an information gathering exercise to help us to formulate a, a diagnosis, for example, and a treatment plan about, um, about a person. And part of that assessment includes things like seeing the patient, um, going, through the, uh, going through the records um, on the databases that we have, speaking to family members, um, but also doing something called a mental state examination Um, And we do that as mental health nurses every time we see a patient. Um, It's something that you learn in university, but if it's a skill like any other skill, if you're not using it regularly, it's something that you lose. And um, nurses in the non-mental health setting are not used to doing mental state exams all the time. Um, But some point in the future, in the Royal Brisbane, um, because of our... um, Having to meet Standard Eight, which of the um, national um, safety and quality of healthcare standards, um, we are going to have non-mental health nurses in the general setting are going to have to um, think about a deterioration in somebody's mental state and know how to score that and escalate that appropriately. So that that's coming for all for all nurses, whether they're working in mental health or not. So practicing a mental state exam um, is going to be really important to ensure you get the proper escalation for your patient.
2: So what are the crucial elements of a mental state exam?
1: So if we start from sort of top to bottom, that's how I like to think of it. So what what's a patient's appearance? So what 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 is somebody wearing, for example? You know, are they wearing three jumpers yet it's 35 degrees outside those sorts of things you're looking for looking for really abnormalities in somebody's appearance um, you're looking at their behavior which includes things like the rapport you have with them whether they're agitated whether they're withdrawn um, you look at their eye contact um, you would look at their mood their speech thought processes thought patterns um, content of thought and that includes things like delusions and um, suicidal thoughts, those sorts of things. Um, and um, each, each sort of area of that mental state helps to inform a, a, a good picture of the patient, really. And it helps, it's like a, a mental state exam is to a mental health clinician what a physical exam is to a physician or a neurological exam is to a neurologist it's a it's an essential part of getting an idea about somebody being able to document that in your chart entries at the end of the shift will help you to determine um, whether somebody is having a deterioration in their mental state or not
0: And it causes – you know, creates a benchmark, doesn't it, for the handovers for people to be able to go back and say, okay, on Tuesday this person was lucid and engaged and feeding themselves Mm -hmm. and today they're confused, they don't know what day it is, they're unable to button up their pyjama shirt. You know, it's a deterioration. One of the things that I love about what you've said is that – There's a big difference, isn't there, between doing an assessment Mm -hmm. and recording something, Mm -hmm. taking a history. And I find that, you know, social work students, new nurses, even junior doctors, it takes a while for them to develop language around that, that we're not merely reporting, we're doing an assessment. Mm -hmm. We're saying, you know, despite the warm temperature, this person is wearing three jumpers, uh, seems oblivious to how hot it is. Mm -hmm. They don't, look uncomfortable, uh, they're distracted, mm. notice that the patient is constantly, mm. appears to be having conversations with people when there's no one else in the room. Like it's it's an assessment rather than just Bill came in, had three jumpers on, was mumbling to themselves constantly. You know, like there's a difference. Yes. Is there some phrases or anything that's good to read that can really help construct an assessment over just a narrative? Yes as um
1: as CNC's in CL Psychiatry what when we're called to see a patient um obviously we read the notes um and often um there's we can see attempts at writing um uh, mental state exams or aspects of that in the uh in the documentation but what's actually more helpful for us and we'll probably be more helpful for many specialties reading the chart and for handover purposes as well is to describe what you see what are you seeing so instead of putting things like agitated patient was agitated um, doesn't tell as much about what was going on when the patient was agitated so you can say something like um, patient um, was pacing the ward all night um, didn't sleep Um, can't sit down on the bed for very long you know isn't eating because they're pacing those sorts of descriptions of behaviors are much better to us than them trying to um have a name for it for example because you know in psychiatry like in lots of other specialties we're all um we're all guilty of using terminology that other people don't really understand every specialty has its own terminology um but what we find more helpful is just an explanation of what's going on of what they're seeing and then we can match that with um with the time that it happened the time the note was written the context that it happened and that helps us to get a really good idea of the person and their function and whether that's improving or deteriorating. You know, we don't need really, I guess, the nurses to say, this person has delusions of persecution, and um, although it's very helpful, but um, it's much, much... Um, much better for us if we can see that um, they've written something along the lines of the patient believes that the police are following him into the hospital and he's worried that the police are interfering with his treatment and those sorts of things are often much more descriptive and and um, they will having that description means that the escalation for that patient's deterioration will be an appropriate escalation. Mm.
2: Well, I guess that's a beautiful segue into when to refer to consultation liaison psychiatry yeah. um, and what for.
1: Yeah, so I guess it's helpful to know a little bit about what we do. It's We've got a very sort of esoteric name, so um, not a lot of people know what we do, but we're essentially um, a mental health service in the general hospital. So although we belong to mental health services, we don't work in the mental health wards. We only work in the surgical medical maternity wards uh, critical care wards so we are sort of the representatives of the mental health service in the non-mental health area so in the royal brisbane we cover all areas all specialties so um there are three teams three cl teams and each one of those teams has a cnc and we all cover rather than covering wards we cover specialties Um, and so um referral to us uh, to the To the medical staff anyway, is usually done by a online referral form, but we encourage referrals from the nurses, mainly because um, we know that the nurses are the ones who are spending the most time with the patients, and um, what the doctors might see on a five-minute ward round is not what the nurses are seeing at two o'clock in the morning, and so we really encourage the nursing staff to document those findings and hand them over to the medical staff to do a formal referral but also they can call us as nurses and we can give advice and um, point them in the right direction in terms of which team can come and see them or what needs to be done before we come and see them.
0: So just to clarify for people who are, who are listening and trying to learn, do you have to see everyone who has a mental health issue when they are an inpatient No,
1: (laughs) it's the short answer. I thought you were going to say that. It's going to need a bigger service. Exactly. Yeah, we're very lucky here. We have have quite a big CL service compared to other hospitals because we have such a big hospital and so many specialties and subspecialties. Um, And we're very lucky in the sense we have a separate psychology department as well. So a lot of CL services in other hospitals that don't have psychology. The nurses do a lot of the psychological therapy with patients. We, as in this hospital, that would be great, but we, um, we're a very big service and we, we uh, get so many referrals
0: that we don't always get that time to do that therapy that the psychologists do very well. So what sort of patients do you need to be referred? You know, like, given that you've got pressures of time, huge hospital, what sort of patients are best served by your service?
1: So, I guess that means thinking about a risk, really, a risk assessment, and so um, risky patients, we try and think of patients that are acutely suicidal, for example, so patients that are very acutely distressed, they're suicidal, they're saying, I'm going to kill myself, I really don't feel safe, you might find that they're secreting objects, those sorts of things, a hoarding um cutlery, maybe, or that they phone their family to say that they don't feel safe, and they're worried. Those sorts of patients we probably need to see very quickly. Acutely psychotic patients as well. So patients that are very agitated, um, that are delusional perhaps or, or very paranoid and they're interfering a lot in other patients' care or maybe the security are having to be called a lot of time. Those sorts of patients we probably need to see very quickly. Um, trauma patients that have come in following suicide attempts, um, very serious suicide attempts we, we need to see too.
0: Well, that has been such a fantastic overview of your job and I guess around, you know, mental health. So I'm going to try and summarise. If I get anything wrong, please interject. But your five things that we need to understand about mental health was number one, what is mental health? And you talked about the difference between mental health and mental illness, um, the differences between sadness and depression and being anxious and having anxiety. Your number two was the importance of developing a therapeutic relationship and rapport with patients and how to do this quickly because once you've got that authentic relationship and good communication happening, it means that if anything else goes wrong, you know, you've you've got good foundations. Number three was the importance of being able to de-escalate emotions without using medication. And I guess the important points for me with this one was that, you know, there's a period of time where you have that opportunity to do it. So to have an established relationship, to be constantly in contact with your own patients um, and then to intervene quickly if you think there's a problem that they feel isn't being addressed. Number four was the importance of the mental health assessment and you made some really lovely points about when someone is documenting that, to just put agitated doesn't mean anything. So to say patient was agitated, was unable to sleep all night, pacing the floor, didn't engage with their visitors, not able to eat food, really describes something that then allows the mental health team such as yourself to to know you know, the severity or the deterioration of what's happening. And number five, you described to us how to refer and when to refer to the consultation and liaison psychiatry team and what the nurses do. That has been a really great overview. Thanks so much, Stacey, for talking to us about mental health.
2: The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs, and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching, and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community. And encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at 5thingsnursing.podbean.com Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to 5 Things.